All right, let's turn to First um, uh, John, chapter number two. Look at First uh, John this evening, chapter number two, and we'll start in verse number twelve. First epistle of John, chapter number two, verse number twelve says, "I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake." I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So at the meeting in Texas, um, I was the youngest preacher that was on the schedule. I wasn't the youngest preacher there, but I was the youngest one uh, that preached there on the schedule. And I was about uh, 40 years younger than the oldest preacher there. But on the other hand, I was about 30 years older than the youngest church member that was there. So to one man, I was a young preacher and then to another one, I was a gray-bearded old man. So it just depends on who you ask what category I was in. Um, the teenager might have said I was an old man, and then uh, the, the preacher would have told me I was a young man. So um, John says, I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you young men, I'm writing to you fathers. Three different groups of people. And so as John, uh, the elderly, he was an elderly man whenever he wrote this, so we can imagine um, who he had in mind, but as the church read this, they might have had some disputes about what category they fell into. So um, usually uh, the little children wouldn't want to be in the little children category, and, and uh, maybe nobody wants to be in the category that they're in. But uh, the fact is that John's writing to, to different groups of people in the church. And I thought about this, and, and this is sort of perhaps a, something that a lot of churches wouldn't want. That they wouldn't want little children, young men, and fathers in the same building. Because they have children's church, because they don't want um, the services interrupted by little kids making noise. But they, then they wouldn't want um, the fathers, so they had the traditional service there, and they had that real early in the morning, to have the traditional service. Or, and then they have the... the regular service where they try to get, I guess, the people who are uh, making a lot of money and, and, and so forth to come in. Um, I don't know. But they have all the services broken up. And, you know, the young people go here and the, you put the old people over here and then you have the traditional there in the middle. Well, that's a little bit different the way John writes, isn't it? He writes to these people and assumes that they're all in the same place. Well, they ought to be in the same place because they're in the same body doesn't matter what age group that you're in. doesn't matter um, 
any of these other things don't matter. They're in the same body. And they shouldn't be separated. I always think it's interesting that, that churches have children's church and, and all this other stuff to separate the, the young people from the preaching of the word, and then they get to college age, and um, then, then they don't want to go to church anymore, and people are astonished why. Well, if you, if you have an, a body that, that separates, then, then why would they think that there was anything from that? It's all together. And you can, you know, we have, you could have the same danger there. You could, you could have everybody in the same, same body, the same assembly, and not um, incorporate everybody, include everybody. You could have the same type of thing going on there. But John writes to this one body, acknowledges the differences, but writes collectively to them. So the different, pe- different people have different temptations and trials at different points of their life. And he acknowledges that and addresses that. But at the same time, it's still the same body, the same church. <clears throat> so the church shouldn't be and can't be built around one demographic. I uh, listened to a story about uh, Rick Warren's church. The guy wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And he went out uh, to California with a demographic in mind. He wanted a church with uh, people in a certain age group, certain jobs, certain skill sets. So he formed his preaching and their ministry and their outreach all to try to get this demographic. That's who he wanted in the church, and that's who he went after, and that's who, that's who came in. But a church shouldn't target a particular group of people unless you target, unless you go out and say, well, we want to bring sinners to faith in Jesus Christ, and we want saved people to come and, and join the church. And I guess if you look at it that way, you could, but... You shouldn't target, say, well, we want to target young people. We want to target this group or that group or the other. We are God's people. And the church of Christ is the body of Christ. And each with particular gifts and abilities given by the Holy Spirit to to edify the body and that we may grow together in love and our gifts may change in um, in our spiritual life, our spiritual walk. But we are all uh, in this body together to glorify the Lord and to love one another. We are the body of Christ, and, and we are to use what God has given us to help, uh, to help one another and glorify his name. And as God's people, we live in a world that is hostile to us. And so you have the little children, the young men, the fathers, who have their own particular trials and temptations and struggles. But we're all in this world, verses 15 through 17, that is antagonistic to us. And so the little children might have trials that the fathers don't have, but we're all in a world that doesn't love our father. We're all in a world system that is antagonistic to the one that we love and to the one that we serve. So it doesn't matter what... A category that we're in, we have our temptations in this world and in a world that's trying to draw us back to itself and away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, as we consider this, we want to think about how each one of us can, can know what we face and understand what we face and know what one another faces. And, and from this, we can say, well, I'm not in this category, 
but I can read this and I can understand and think about my brothers and sisters in that other category and I can I can see what they might have and I can say well this is how I can pray and this is how I can be thankful and this is how I can learn and, and help and then secondly we'll look and see how that together as a body we have to avoid uh, the the trials or the not the trials the temptations uh, that are out in the world so we're going to break it up that way look at the, the three categories first and then uh, to love not the world so you got little children young men and fathers and, and there are some who, who say this is spiritual but I think if you just read it um, the, the plain way would be just the, to the age groups I mean I don't guess it would be too big a difference if you thought of it spiritually but it, it would seem to imply that uh, this is just the age groups of people so, and then you also notice that he repeats himself. So I write to you little children in verse 12, and then again in verse 13, the same. So he, he hits both groups twice. And so I'm just going to bring the two groups together instead of going through back and forth. So first we'll look at the little children. I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So those taking both of both of the verses, that's what he's saying to the little children. I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So we see here in the body there are little children who have been born again. Even little children need to be born again. We are by nature the children of wrath, is what the Paul tells us. By nature means that, that naturally, born into this world, children of wrath, that we are under the wrath of God and deserve the wrath of God. And all these uh, wonderful little children that we have that, that come into the house of God, and we, I love to see it, and I love to see uh, the parents when they bring their children to the house of God. But we have to know that by nature, as sweet and as lovely as they are, by nature they're the children of wrath. And even little children need to be born again. And so here we find that by God's grace, John's writing to little children that had been born again, who had their sins forgiven for his name's sake. There, there's no scripture that says that you have to be 16 years old before the Lord can save you and add you to the church. The scriptures don't say that. The scripture says that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him as their, um, their only hope of, of salvation, um, will be saved. And so John is writing here to children who were born again, who recognized their sin, who recognized their need of a Savior, and knew that their only hope of salvation was in Jesus Christ. Even little children um, need to be born again, but even little children can be born again. Jesus is a mighty Savior. So, well, a child can't know very much. Well, how much does the Bible say that we have to know? How much theology do we have to know before the Lord can save us? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, the Bible teaches that, that God, by His grace, regenerates and gives life and gives faith to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a faith that is given by God. We are saved by grace. And if a person sees their need for pardon 
person sees their sin and sees that they have broken God's law and sees that they have need for pardon and comes to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then they can receive pardon for their sins. <clears throat> it may be a weak faith, but a saving faith is what we need. Not, not a strong faith, not a mighty faith, but, but a saving faith, an effectual faith. We are not saved by our faith, but we are saved through faith. And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we, we need to have a childlike faith. Sometimes we can get, uh, sometimes as you get older, it's more difficult to, to have a, a childlike faith, a childlike trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that children will receive the truth and, and not question the truth, whereas sometimes we'll start questioning everything, questioning uh, the word of God and making excuses where Jesus said we ought to have a childlike faith that receives the truth of the word of God. We're not saved by, but, but, but through. That, and what I mean by that is Jesus doesn't go and look to see who has strong faith and say, okay, you have faith, so I'll save you. But no, it is our faith. We're saved by grace through faith that faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the faith that we cling to the Savior who saves us, not that Jesus goes and says, you have faith, so I'm going to give grace unto you. Our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. And then John says, I write unto you because, on account of, your sins being forgiven. Well, how are your sins forgiven? Well, it's forgiven through the blood of Christ. So here you had a group of people who knew they were sinners, knew they had a need of pardon, knew that Jesus saves from our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you had these little ones who knew they were sinners, they knew they were um, unclean, and they knew Jesus was a mighty Savior. And they came to Christ by faith to be cleansed from their sins. And John says, I write unto you because your sins are forgiven. He didn't write because they did good things. He didn't write because they had stopped doing bad things. But he writes because your sins are forgiven. Sometimes you can take a tone with 1 John and make and make and come away with it and say, well, I don't even know if I'm saved or not. But John writes to make sure the people the believers know they're believers. And he writes to them, he says, Your sins are forgiven. That there is an assurance of the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an assurance of pardon here for those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are the sins forgiven? How can he have such confidence? How can he have such assurance? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be leery of those who, um, who are young and make professions? Shouldn't you be leery of those and not, and, not, uh, and not receive them into the fellowship? Well, John says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Again, not because of their, their, the strength of their faith, but the object of their faith. He said, your sins are forgiven not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. 
You are forgiven for his namesake, for the namesake, for Christ's sake. No one is saved for the sake of what we have done, but we're saved for the sake of what Christ did. And our salvation, anyone's salvation, is secure because it's tied to the work of Jesus, is wrought by the work of Jesus. You are forgiven because Jesus was successful in his offering of himself on the cross for our sins. And since Jesus did what he set out to accomplish, and that is saving his people from their sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness, since he achieved what he set out to do, then you can be certain of your salvation and know that your sins are forgiven if you have your faith in what Christ has done for you. You can be have full assurance of faith if your faith is in what he has done because our, your sins are forgiven for his sake. And it's just glorious to, to, to see John, the apostle, write and give assurance to these little ones because of what Christ has done for them. Now, if Christ has not done anything for you, you don't have any assurance. And if your assurance is, if your hope is in what you have done, then you don't have any assurance. But he's, that's not who he's writing to here. He said, he's writing to those who believe. He said, your sins are forgiven for his sake. And then verse 13, he adds to that also because they have known the Father. John says, little children, you know God the Father. How do they know God the Father? Well, because they believe in his Son. You know the Father, and you can pray to the Father, and you can trust that the Father will take care of you. <clears throat> you can trust the Father will love you. You can trust the Father will provide for you. You can trust the Father will keep you. You can trust the Father to watch over you. Isn't that good news? Isn't that wonderful news that the Father watches over his, his children? And that's something a child can understand, certainly, right? That they're... God the Father loves his children and cares for his children and provides for his children. He keeps his children safe and watches over his children. Well, how do we know the Father? Well, we know the Father through Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know the Father. And if you come to Jesus, you have the Father. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, then you have known the Father. And so he points them to know. Sometimes little children don't have fathers, you don't have good fathers. Well, that's no reason uh, to, to hide that. It's no reason not to, to make this known. It's every reason to make it known. Say so You might not have the earthly father that you need, but you have a heavenly father that, that is perfect and good and kind and loving. Well, that's good news for, for sinners to know that we are saved from our sins, our sins are forgiven, and we have a father that watches over us. John gives assurance to believers who have their sins forgiven and who know the Father. I don't want anybody to be sure they're going to heaven because of how much they believe, but I want you to be sure that you're going to heaven, child of God, because Jesus has died for your sins. James Morgan said, Little ones in Christ embark on a stormy sea of life with Christ at the helm to guide them safely through the storms and perils. And they will arrive at last at the haven of eternal rest with rich treasures of their own redeemed souls and those who have made the journey with them. So well might the aged apostle stoop to notice the little children. 
which is now being considered. It is indeed sublime to see him stoop, to be the instructor of babes. But it is alike in harmony the soundest philosophy, the purest philanthropy, and true religion. I remember when we'd go to Bible conferences and such, and whenever Dad first started going to church, and we were we were little, and and some of the some of the preachers would walk past you and and not pay any attention. But I remember a couple would stop and they'd talk to me. I I, I remember very specific times they'd stop and, and sit down and talk to me and treat me like a person. And and whenever you know whenever they started preaching, I would listen to them. I would listen to those men. I wouldn't listen much to the, the other guys. But I listened to those guys who paid attention to me and talked to me. Because I thought, well, this, these people care about me. These people have a concern for what? For my soul. And, and so John stoops down and talks to the little ones that maybe some people think not paying attention, but they, they do indeed pay attention. So that's the first category. Well, the second category is the young men. I've written to you young men because you're strong. So you've got young men who are at the maybe the height of their physical powers, maybe at the height of their, their mental and physical ability. And so here you've got young men who, who can have a zeal and a passion for something. But these young men, these young people who have been redeemed, have a zeal and a passion to serve the Lord. So, whenever young people, we might have even this young men, I don't know what the age groups are, but you might think, um, well, just in the middle of life, and, and they have a zeal and a passion for something, and a strength for something. And John says, he writes to them, and I don't know if congratulate would be the right word, but he, he encourages them because they are strong. And that's a good thing. Because they had a passion and a zeal for the glory of God. And they used the strength and the time of life that God had given them for God's glory. Um, when, whenever you're you're young, and maybe before you have a family, you've got, you're rich in time. Isn't it amazing? You think back, and you might think back when you were a teenager, and you think, boy, I was so, you thought that you were so busy. I've got so much homework and stuff to do, and I've got a job after school. I got to, I'm so busy. And then you get married, and you say, well, I wasn't busy at all. Then you have kids, and you say, well, I, I really wasn't busy. I, I had all the time in the world and didn't even realize it. Well, um, in this time of life, you, you have strength and time and, and, and ability. Well, he, he encourages them that they're strong. And so we should, you should use that strength for the glory of God. Well, how does that play out? How did they use that strength? Well, they've overcome the wicked one. They overcame the wicked one. Well, I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. I've, um, and then in verse 14, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. So how does the word of God abide in them? Well, they receive the gospel in 1 Peter 1, so that the word abides in them in that way, but it also abides in their mind. 
and abides in their heart. And you know, the, the longer that you go, the harder it is to remember things. But the younger that you are, how, how easy it is to remember. How easy it is to play memory games and remember song lyrics and, and remember movie quotes and remember all the uh, football scores. And I used to know all kinds of baseball statistics, how many stolen bases this one had and what their RBIs were and, and who was the MVP of this year, who won the World Series. That My head was full of baseball statistics. Um, but I'd been a lot better off if I'd filled my head with the Word of God. Um, and so these young people use their minds and their times to fill their minds with the Word of God. And so now they're strong and they have a zeal and they have the Word of God in their hearts and their minds in verse 14 and have overcome the wicked one. So John says you, you, have, you have a strength, you have the Word of God in your heart and you've overcome the wicked one. How did they do that? Well, how did Jesus overcome the assaults of the wicked one out in the wilderness? Well, he did by the word of God. The word of God. Jesus didn't have a a leather-bound Bible out in the wilderness. He was out in the desert fasting. How did he have the word of God? Well, it was in his mind. It was in his heart. He knew God's word. And so these young men have the word of God and have overcome the wicked one's temptations with the sword of the Spirit. And so, young, young people ought to memorize God's word. They ought to know God's word. It, it's, it's not the way that it ought to be. It ought not to be that you start taking church seriously whenever you get to the end of your life. You can't say, well, I'm too busy now to take God seriously. From the text of scripture we have here, it says whenever you are young is when you ought to be uh, busy about the word of God. Uh, the work of the Lord. And you can't say, well, I'll just wait till I retire, then I'll start taking the Lord seriously. It doesn't work like that. Here they take the word of God seriously and take the service of the Lord, serious, or, uh, Lord seriously. So young people are at the height of their powers as far as strength and, and so forth, but also at the height of the temptation. So they have the most ability physically but also are at the height of temptation in, in many regards. So it seems like the whole world is, is before you. I was listening to somebody talk recently, a young, a young person, and they were talking about um, their, their parents being old or something like that, and I was thinking, uh, well, here this, this young person is going on by how he's got it all going on. I thought, you know, he makes minimum wage at the mall part-time, um, doesn't have a house to live in, <laughs> and all these things. I, thought, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade places with that. You know, I, I like having uh, a house, and I like having, you know, I like being an adult. And so our world's got everything twisted upside, upside down like that's the main thing. I was thinking, you got a long way to go before you get halfway close to where your parents parents are at, but but uh, the whole world seems before you, and all temptations are presented. The love of the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. And Satan 
knows this. And Satan knows that the temptations that are there to think, well, I'm going to miss out or, or I'm going to lose out on all these things that the world has to offer, all these things I want to experience. And, and, and it's right there at my, my fingertips. And I don't want to miss out on all these things. And through pride and temptation, a lack of contentment, a lack of patience, Satan can hobble a young person and try to hobble and, and maim from the very start. So that's a temptation. And John's writing unto these people that had overcome that temptation. So that's something the church can pray about, must pray about. That, so we see the temptation here that, um, that this category has to, to, uh, to overcome the wicked one, to be strong in the word, to have the word and dwell and, but to look by faith, knowing that the, the, enemy, the evil one is a defeated enemy. He still looks to devour, but he's a defeated enemy. And he can be de- defeated by faith. And so, look to this passage for encouragement. Well, the third category we have here are the fathers. And he says, I write. And then he says, also, I have written unto you fathers, because you've known him that is from the beginning. Well, who's that? Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm writing to you fathers in this last category because you know Jesus. Isn't that interesting that, that the little children and the fathers almost have the same, the same uh, encouragement here? That they know God. They know Jesus. When the years, we see more years roll by in our lives, we see more and more sunsets, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? What's to know Jesus? To know him, to trust in him, to remember him, to talk about him, to tell others about him. So I'm writing to you fathers because you know Jesus. And you love Jesus. And you put your hope in him. He didn't write anything about their strength. And he didn't write anything about what they've done in the past or or anything such as that. He said, I'm writing to you because you know Jesus. You know him that was from the beginning. You may have walked with him a long time. Or maybe not. but But you know him and you love him. And there's your hope. There's your confidence. And so... Any other category, you should think, well, here's one at the end of life, and they just keep looking to Jesus. So the little children who look, who are, have their sins forgiven for his sake, looking to Jesus, it's never going to change. Our hope is in what Christ has done for us. So here you have the body of Christ, young, old, and everyone in between, that their hope and their confidence is what Christ has done for us. And so there's different temptations, different um, focuses from time to time, but it's one body looking to Jesus. Well, then we have a sort of a, a sharp transition, it would seem. He says, love not the world. So here we are looking to Christ 
overcoming the wicked one, having the word of God in our hearts, knowing the Father, knowing our sins are forgiven. And he says, now, church, everyone, don't love the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Why? Because if a man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what's that mean to love the world? Well, you can look it up in a dictionary, but that doesn't really help you because it's a very broad word. And you can look it up in a Greek lexicon, and that doesn't really help you because that's also a very broad word. So we're going to have to figure out what the world means by looking at the context of it. And if you look in 1 John, he mentions 14 times the word world. And then again in 2 John. Sometimes he talks about the world as a group of people. Sometimes the world is lost people. And sometimes the world is saved people. So sometimes, like in chapter 3, and verse 13, it says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. But then in chapter 4, and verse 14, it says, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So sometimes the world hates Christ and sometimes the world loves Christ. It just depends on the context. So, But the world can be talking about a group of people and, and you could divide it down. Sometimes it talks about everybody that's in the world. Sometimes it talks about lost people. Sometimes it talks about saved people. You just have to read by context. Sometimes John uses it to talk about the system of the world. Human nature as the world. The way that people live in the world. So it's a world system. Uh, just depravity of man. How people by nature act. And then sometimes it talks about the, the physical world. The rocks and the trees and, and the place where we live. So those are the three possibilities John could be talking about. Love not the world. I don't think Jesus or John is saying don't love people. He can't be saying don't love the brethren because he just said he that loveth his um, brother abideth in the light. So he can't be saying don't love people. And he can't be saying don't love lost people because Jesus told us to love even our enemies. We can't be talking about don't love the world, not loving people. So, so what would he be talking about? Are we not to love the creation that God gave us? Are we not to love um, the things that are in the world or that are uh, not directly associated, we might say, uh, to, to scriptural things, indifferent things, we might say? Well, what's John mean? Well, if we think about all that he says here, I believe he's talking about a misplaced love of things in the world that centers on a worldview of the depraved heart. It's things in the world that might not even be sinful, but are taken from a depraved way of thinking about things. So the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, is putting those things as primary things. Anything that puts God first. Little children 
are to know the Father. If you know the Father, you know the Son. If you know the Son and the Father, you love God. But if you love material possessions or love yourself in pride or something more than God, then you're putting that first and you're loving the world. If young men don't overcome the wicked one, but go after things that the wicked one offers above that of God, then that's the love of the world. To love anything more than he that is from the beginning is the love of the world. A job is good. In fact, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. We're supposed to work. We're supposed to work and, and uh, get a job, live quiet, peaceable lives, pay attention to our families and so forth. But you could take a good thing and make that the primary thing. That's a temptation that a person could have. They could get a certain age and and their whole focus is on their job, getting advancements, making more money, getting promotions. Make that the number one thing. And put that before God and put that before the house of God and the service of God. Then get more money and, and nicer things and so forth. Well, that that is a type of loving the world. It's not, it's not a bad thing to have a job. It's not a bad thing to work hard. It's not a bad thing to get promotion. But it would be a bad thing if you put that thing first. A family is good, but the family is not important than Christ. Chris and I have been in homeschooling communities for 20 years in three different states. And one thing that we, we have seen is there is a temptation um, for, for people who love their families is to put their families before God. And you'd be surprised how many groups, how many people in those groups don't go to church because they they feel like they're sufficient to take care of themselves. They don't need anybody to teach them the word of God and so forth. That's a big temptation for, for those groups. Well, that's loving things, the gift, more than the one who gave. Naturally, it includes bad things, but I think that's kind of obvious. It's, it's loving the gifts of the creator. It's loving the creation more than the creator. See, the world is full of lust of the flesh and the of the eyes and the pride of life, and when the person lives for those things, those, then their affections are out of order. Enjoying the blessings of God and enjoying the, the creation of God more than the one that gives the gifts. It's idolatry. Loving the world is idolatry. It's loving the created more than the creator and loving ourselves more than loving others. It's a world, it's what world, the world looks like without the Lord Jesus Christ. Making the creation the object of our worship, the creation the object of our affections, and pride and lust being the primary motivations. Lusting after things, desiring things, making that the primary motivation for our life, and not the love of the Father and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the brethren. Because that's what John says. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. But he that hateth his brother abides in darkness. And so you have these the little children, the young men, and the fathers who all love the Lord and are following the Lord. He said, but don't, don't go back and love the world. 
Because that love of the world will draw you away. It'll make you love the pride of life to be self-centered, to lift yourself up. It'll make you look to these things in the world and love that and become an idolater. There's competing affections. Our Lord said, no man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't love the Father and you can't love the world at the same time. You can love the Father and you can enjoy the world. Right? Adam and Eve were given, or Adam was given this world, and then he was given the help to take dominion in this world and to enjoy what God has given him. You can enjoy this world. You can enjoy your family. You can enjoy the things that, the, that are in this world. You can enjoy creation. You can go out and enjoy hunting and fishing and hobbies. You can take great delight in your work. You can, you can work hard and, and rejoice in what God has given you. But if that becomes your God, then everything's upside down. But you can go and work hard and, and get your promotions and do all these types of things and excel in what you do and in your craft and, and devote your time and attention to it for the glory of God. And that's not love in the world. But to forget about God and make that your primary focus is the love of the world. It's not the things in the world that are necessarily sinful, but the love of the things. That's the problem. So you got the lust of the flesh. That's manifest. We know what that is. Adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, wrath, strife, sedition. Living for, for the natural heart. The lust of the eyes. Not living by faith, but what we see and desiring possessions and, and desiring to look. The pride of life, to be lifted up, to be praised, to be popular. People live for that. We're going to be patted on the back. Having this as the focus of life is to deny the Father, John tells us. And it's foolish because this world's passing away. To love a world that is passing away and, and dying is a fool's errand. It's, uh, it's living your life on the Titanic. You know, it, it's sinking. It's all, but look at all this nice furniture on this place. Look how beautiful this, this uh, dining hall is. Well, it's sinking. It's passing away. John says, don't live for things that are passing away. Because if you do the will of God, you abide forever. You have everlasting life. Isn't that better to have everlasting life? To have a resurrected body and live in the new heavens and the new earth where you'll live forever in the bliss of the presence of God? Then it is to live for a short time in a corrupted world to get things that won't even make you happy. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life will make you happy for just a little while, then you won't want it anymore, and then you'll want more. I saw an interview, they were interviewing some homeless people out in San Francisco, and they was asking why they did it. I said, well, I don't want to work. I'm content to live here on the sidewalk. So one guy said he gets six hundred some dollars a month from the city, gets uh, food stamps, and he goes and gets free meals. He said, "I just have to wake up, go eat breakfast, get high, 
and go eat lunch. Then go eat supper and go sleep and do it all over again. He said, I don't have to do anything. But you know what happens? That it's never enough. It's never enough because they, they can never be satisfied with drugs and alcohol and so forth. It doesn't give them any lasting happiness, any lasting joy. What about the person who makes a billion dollars in their business? That doesn't give them any lasting joy either. Both spectrums, the homeless person on the street or the, the millionaire in his mansion, they don't have any lasting satisfaction. It's never enough. Never give them what they want. This world is passing away. Live for God in his glory where you can be satisfied in Christ. And so in this church, we have people from every category. And so we can take this message and help each other to love God, pray for each other in our temptations, help each other in our walk with God, help each other not to love the world, help each other to love Jesus, to encourage one another to love Jesus, to encourage one another to pray for one another, to help one another, to bless one another, where we can glorify God together. To love God and not this world. I pray the Lord would bless you tonight and help us to love Jesus more.